0: Death by Champagne, the podcast here to keep you up at night. This week we are bringing you two separate cold cases. I cover a string of cold cases from the 70s referred to as the Stanford murders, one of which remains unsolved to this day. Mackenzie takes us on a trip down I-70 where a number of seemingly random attacks on retail workers leaves numerous counties in fear, when it appears all of these murders were done by the same individual. This episode contains foul language and discussions about murder, descriptions of remains, and sexual assault. We'll do our best to stay on track, but the bottles are popped.
1: Hey guys! Welcome back to Death by Champagne.
0: From our, uh, you know, casual two-month hiatus, however long it's been.
1: <laughs> we just... <laughs> <laughs> Life has been throwing nonstop. I was going to say curveballs, but like it's more like nonstop shit sandwiches. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> that's a much closer, <laughs> accurate description. It's been I crazy. I feel like...
1: We, like, get on the ball for a few weeks, and then I just, like, have to come back a month from now with my tail between my legs and be like, you guys, life happened. <laughs> yeah, we just,
0: like, crashed. We crash after a book series. It's a lot.
1: Yeah, and I think that's And we're not on also, a schedule,
0: so. That's a thing that we need to uh, realize about ourselves is that after the book series finishes, it's like, yes. uh, I can't anymore. <laughs> yes, yes. But now we're on a schedule – And hopefully this continues to happen. So anytime a book series comes out and it's over, you can expect a break and then kind of back to our regular formatted episode, break, whatever, you know, until the next book series. Yes. That's what we're going to attempt to give you guys so that it's not just this randomness of three episodes and then you don't hear from us for five weeks. Like,
1: (laughs) yes. Yeah. I think we, I don't know, in our break, especially with, Savage Appetites kind of being like the, like what it was when we did it. I just like wasn't excited about writing regular episodes. I think we both kind of like fell off of that. Just like, yeah, what,
0: yeah, what's the vehicle for this? What definitely? It just felt weird. It felt like a yeah. weird thing to be doing after reading that book. Yeah.
1: I think we needed some more time. Like, even though we didn't realize that until now,
0: I think the inability to stay on a schedule was, we were not done processing all of that. Definitely not. I mean, and truthfully, the last, like, four weeks have been chaos for both of us.
1: I don't understand how. I, like, at one point, I was teaching five classes at a time and had a full-time job and we
0: podcasted every week and I don't. I don't understand how I was doing that. No idea. Literally no idea. I've been back. I got a new job. I don't know if I've said that on here yet, but I got a new job. So I've been in the office full time now. And I'm just like, why is this a thing again? Like I wanted a full time job. It's not like I didn't want this to happen. I did. (laughs) Now that I'm here, I'm like, why does anyone work 40 hours a week? Like, why is that the thing?
1: Oh, girl, capitalism, student loans, suck my dick, fuck off.
0: Literally, all of it.
1: But, I mean, <laughs> I hate I'm enjoying
0: it. my new job, but I'm still also like 40 hours a week. Like, what? It's not ideal. It's not an ideal situation for anyone. No, I'm definitely still trying to acclimate to that and trying to, because it's like I get home and I'm exhausted. Our house has been a fucking disaster. Chris didn't go to work yesterday and clean the whole house, which was amazing (laughs) because it's been a nightmare because it's like he's been getting home late too. He's been getting home after me. And it's like the last thing I want to do is do more things when I get home (laughs) because I've been doing them all day. Yeah, I can't cite a source for this, but I I have talked
1: about it several times without ever going back and finding the source. But I read a really great article at one point in my life that was like the forty-hour work week was meant for one person in a two-person mm-hmm, household. Mm-hmm. It was not meant for yes. two people,
0: and then to also keep your household together, like yeah, and then
1: God forbid you have a child.
0: <laughs> oh my God, I can't, I can't. No, I can't imagine. Anybody who works or
1: podcasts and has children, Jesus Christ, hats off. Yeah,
0: like how?
1: I mean, I choose to fill my time with 17 hobbies that I can't give enough attention to and two jobs, so those are my children. Same. But I I could do nothing. I could do nothing if I had a child. No, no. (laughs) Yeah, the only thing I have done since the last time we – well, since the last time we podcasted, I finished our last book, started writing that series – And my Patreon episode, but other than that, I have purely watched King of the Hill all the way from season one to 13.
0: (laughs) Good. Good. It's a great way to spend your time. I watched that, and I've started watching all of the ID
1: shows that are on Hulu while I work. They're not good, so I can just let them play in the background, Mm -hmm. and it's like fine. But I did watch one this past week. Um, Actually, I think this one was on Netflix. It's a series called Captive, and I just turned on the first episode, and it is one of the wildest rides I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) (laughs) It's all these stories of true life, like situations where people have been kidnapped or taken hostage, and the first one is the Lucasville prison uprising riot in Ohio, and it's all first person. It's all people who used to be imprisoned there. Were imprisoned there at the time of the riot and participated. The guards who got out, the guards who were taken captive.
0: Fuck. And it's one of
1: the most intense things I've ever watched.
0: It sounds insane. It,
1: it is. On I mean on all sides it is so sad. Yeah. So scary. Just like it I think it does justice talking about like it started as a movement that um Muslim inmates didn't want to receive some kind of like medical test mm-hmm. because it violated their rights. And so they were going to protest and then other prisoners hijacked that. Oh, Jeez. And, you know, their what was supposed to
0: be like, we're just going to sit here and not participate in this. Yeah. became Like like be a silent protest turned into yeah. just violence and rage and chaos. It uh, became several violent murders and like they have footage of all
1: of it. It's, Fuck. so so horrible but like the the production was i feel like every person who want like who spoke in the documentary got their space and their time to be like this yeah. is how i feel about it that's good so that was nice it wasn't yeah. like any one person's perspective it was like every person that was involved and was available and able to talk got to say like what happened to them during that time
0: frame yeah it's impressive we watched uh, the Conjuring Three recently. Was it spooks? I thought it was very spooks. <laughs> I liked it. It it was it was like intense from start to finish, in a good way. And I I really liked it. I would say of the Conjuring universe, it's probably my second favorite movie. How many are there? Um. Well, there so there's three Conjuring. I think. There's three Annabelle, and then there's The Nun. I think that's it. So, what, seven? But I feel like there's nine for some reason. That is a lot. There's a lot in, like, The Conjuring universe. Annabelle, I think it's the third Annabelle movie. The one where they're not even in it, really. Ed and Lorraine Warren. It's, like, their daughter when she's little, and they're away, and she's a babysitter. That's the best one. Oh, nice. Yes, because one of the the babysitter's friend goes into, like, the room where they have everything, where they have all the artifacts, and, like, all the shit happens, and it's so spooky. That one's really good. But this one, Conjuring 3, I was impressed with. I have not even made it all the way through the first Conjuring. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Me and Cash sat down to
1: watch it one day, and then I can't remember. I'm, like, mixing up that movie and one other. Either we both had to leave and we couldn't finish it, or I fell asleep. One of the two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you
0: gotta watch them. Watch them all. I really liked this one. Okay. I'm sure you've heard of this. I had not. I've, like, vaguely heard of it. I'm trying to say, see how I want to present this. I'm just going to. Never mind. I'm just going to go for it. Here we go. (laughs) Take two. In August of 1974, just a few months shy of high school graduation, Arliss Perry, formerly Dykema, married her high school sweetheart, Bruce Perry, who was about to be a sophomore med student at Stanford University. Bruce would later become a child psychiatrist. Arliss moved from Bismarck, North Dakota, where she and Bruce grew up, to Stanford, California, where she got a job as a receptionist at a law firm, Spaeth, Blaise, Valentine, and Klein. So on the night of October 12th, 1974, Bruce and Arliss got into an argument, supposedly about their tire pressure on their car. And that information is from Maury Terry's. Very controversial book covering Arliss's murder, and the title of that book is The Ultimate Evil. He covers a number of murders, and hers is included in this book. So regardless of what they were arguing about, Arliss wanted to be left alone to pray at the Stanford Memorial Church. Bruce walked her to to the church around 11.30 p.m. before walking the rest of the way to Quillen Hall, where the couple called home. Around 3 a.m. on October 13th, Bruce awoke to find the bed empty. He searched the house, coming to the conclusion that Arliss never returned home from the church. He frantically called campus police to report her missing. And one of the security officers on duty that night was Steve Crawford, who also locked up the church around midnight. He told Bruce that he had just been by the church at 2 a.m. to do his regular rounds and found the building empty and still locked. So at 5.45 a.m. on the morning of October 13th, Crawford returned to the church to unlock it for the day. And upon his typical procedures of making sure all the entrances were unlocked, he discovered Arliss Perry's body and called 911. When the police arrived, Crawford led them to where he discovered her, which was at the back of the church next to the altar, like under, like half under a pew, She was found laid out on her back, nude from the waist down, with her arms... This was in varying places. Some I saw that her arms were crossed over her chest, and some places I saw that they were crossed behind her back. Uh, Anyway, there was a candle stuck... There was a candle placed underneath her blouse between her breasts and a candlestick protruding, protruding from her vagina. Her jeans had been folded into a diamond shape and placed across her legs... And an ice pick with the handle broken off was sticking out of the back of her head. Ugh. Yes. Very gruesome. Probably should have given a warning about those details. My apologies. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: knew of
0: this case. Like, I think
1: I know the name and more about the ending, but I did not know any of
0: that. Yeah. 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 Obviously everything about how her body was discovered just screams ritualistic. And as we are in the seventies, it's prime time to blame anything strange and unusual on Satanism. Okay, well that's now Maury Terry makes sense. Yes. <laughs> that's because I am essentially what with his work. whole book was about. Was that there yeah, it was a cult and he includes multiple other murders, I think, during at the time. Um That were, you know, considered strange, like how the body was found or things found around the body that he was talking about a cult of Satanisms being involved in all of this. So once police conducted their initial investigation of gathering evidence, found near and on Arliss's body, they thought they would easily catch a break when it was determined that there was semen left next to her body and an identifiable handprint on one of the candlesticks. Their first Two persons of interest were obviously Bruce, Arliss's husband, and Steve Crawford, the security guard uh, who discovered her remains. According to Palo Alto Online, in quotes, DNA testing wasn't available at the time of the murder. So the palm prints were compared to both Bruce and Crawford and both were ruled out. So it was determined that Arliss was strangled and beaten before ultimately being murdered by the ice pick in the back of her head. She was se- she was sexually assaulted, but no semen was found in her body, just on a pillow next to her body. So while the rest of the world focused in on the strange, ritualistic aspects of Arliss's murder, debating on whether it was some kind of satanic cult or other devil worshippers, the police were trying to find one remaining suspect, who was witnessed entering the church around midnight the night of Arliss's murder. Aside from Arliss and Steve, there were a total of five other individuals at the church that evening— Four of them were identified by witnesses or coming forward themselves and ruled out, but one person remained. A witness stated seeing a young man with sandy brown hair, roughly 5 foot ten enter the church around midnight. And the interest in this stranger intensified when Crawford told police that when he opened the church at 5:45 a.m, one of the doors was already opened, and it looked like it had been broken open from the inside, out. Yeah. So, I didn't even—I react. My eyes just got huge. Her eyes were just massive. Spooks. Forgot I was on a podcast. <laughs> so Arliss's case quickly went cold. With no sp- suspects or leads, police could only hope that the stranger would come forward to give more clues. Or that advancement in DNA would eventually allow them to come up with a match to the semen found at the scene. So there are other cases that we're going to look into three other murders happened during 1973 and 1974 on the Stanford campus that left residents and some police questioning whether there was a serial killer in the area the first was a 21 year old grad student at Stanford Leslie Ann Perlov she was working at the North County Law Library when she disappeared On February 13th, 1973, a little more than a year before Arliss's murder, Leslie was last seen at her work at 3 p.m. At the time, she lived with her parents and never made it home from work. Her car was discovered later in the day, seemingly abandoned with no Leslie in sight. And on February 16th, just three days after her disappearance, an officer who was searching areas on horseback discovered her body. In quotes, face down underneath an oak tree. She was found barefoot with no purse and she had been strangled. This also is differing. In some places I saw that she was strangled with her underwear and then other places I saw that she was strangled with a scarf that she was wearing. Um, Her pantyhose had been stuffed in her mouth but she didn't appear to be sexually assaulted.
1: I just wonder what happens. Like, I know you find differing details like that all the time. I just really wonder
0: what happens in the reporting that no, I know. Those those differences persist yeah. for so long. Because, yeah. yeah, it was scarf some places and then underwear others. And I was like, well, <laughs> there's, you know, it's like equal amount of people are saying each thing. So, <clears throat> so the next murder uh, was Janet Ann Taylor on the night of March 24th, 1974, just a few months prior to Arliss's murder. 21-year-old Janet was hiking, hitchhiking home from Stanford campus, where she was visiting a friend, and she reportedly left her friend's home around 7 p.m., but never made it to her destination. Janet's body was discovered the following morning on March 25th by a milkman. She was found barefoot as well, missing her purse, shoes, and her raincoat. Like Leslie, she had been strangled, and the autopsy revealed no sexual assault. Her raincoat, belt, and shoes were found thrown haphazardly along Sand Hill Road where her body was found. It's like someone drove off and just like threw them as they went. There were so many theories that have been passed around, including notorious serial killer Ted Bundy and the son of Sam being the murderers in these cases. Ted Bundy was seriously considered for the murder of Leslie. She matched his other victim types and he visited Stanford but there was no evidence linking him to either crime. And one of them, I think it was in Janet's murder, he was, like, there was a receipt of him getting gas in some other state. So, like, he definitely didn't kill Janet. And David Berkowitz was seriously considered for the murder of Arliss Perry when he wrote a number of letters stating that he knew who killed Arliss, always referring to the individual as Manson II. And like his notes were really cryptic about like Arliss was stalked and like all these because there were these weird there was some weird thing with I didn't all include it all like someone had given a friend of hers a phone number that was in the phone book for her husband and it wasn't him like the number had been called like by her friend to reach her and her husband's mom to reach her. Artless on numerous occasions and it wasn't the right number and so for some reason people like were linking that back to the son of Sam that she was being stalked and harassed and like you know all these crazy things were happening when I, I don't know why that incident happened but I don't think it had anything to do with her death
1: yeah I mean I certainly don't know enough about that whole situation I mean with like the prevalence of how son of Sam is like Quote popular right now because of the right, Netflix documentary. Right. I haven't finished that, but I th- just think like any kind of any kind of one-off thing. Yes, yes. Like I just imagine 1970s version of Twitter. is just like <laughs> you tell your friend at one corner that this happened, and then they go tell their friend that picks them up later that that happened, and definitely. Then that's the story.
0: Definitely, and I mean. These were all very close, you know? Like, they all happened within a year. And they were all... I mean, they were all strangled. Arliss died from the ice pick, but they were all strangled. And then in Arliss's case, they did kept keep saying that they weren't sure if she had been sexually assaulted. But I was like, I don't know how you can say that when a candle was... She was literally assaulted by a candle, at least. So how can you determine whether... <laughs> You know, she was not also raped, but I yeah, guess because no semen concept. was found in her body, they determined that she wasn't raped. I have no idea, but that was mentioned. Yeah. So if that's true, the... then like all three of them were not sexually assaulted, not raped at yeah. least, and then, but were all strangled. So they do all seem very similar. I would like to talk to a
1: professional about the similarity, like not the similarities, that's kind of the wrong word, but like the overlap between what you just said to say that, like, she's clearly, like, there is a sexual element to that yeah. crime.
0: Yeah. Even if it's right, not. Like, saying she was assaulted by a candlestick but not raped. I'm like, well, how did you determine that? Or just, like, it, you know, what what's the cutoff? What yeah. do you, from, like, a clinical
1: standpoint, or I don't even know if clinical is the right word, just, like, from an investigative standpoint, what I would say that, like, that person definitely had sexual motives. Yeah,
0: right. Like, that's that's a sexual crime to defile someone like that. Yeah. Yeah, it was strange that that was in a bunch of the articles. But I think also it was in a bunch of the articles to link her to these two women who were not sexually assaulted, to be like, yeah. they all could have been by the same person. So all three of these cases were cold until 2018 when a break finally came so steve crawford remained at the top of the suspect list in arliss's murder the dna gathered from the semen found near her body was resubmitted for dna analysis sometime i believe in 2016 and then in 2016 detectives begin interrogating crawford again to you know, get the story again, tell them they're re-looking into it, they're just re-interviewing everyone, you know, on and on and on. And in June of 2018, detectives finally got the news that Crawford's DNA was a match to the DNA found near Arlis. So their 44-year-old cold case was finally coming to an end with hopes to close a few more cold cases, you know, with the thought that all of these were related. So on June 21st, 2018, officers arrived at to the apartment of Steve Crawford to formally arrest him for the murder of Arliss Perry. When they arrived, Crawford spoke through the door and asked if he could take some time to get dressed. Having already obtained a key from the apartment manager, detectives let themselves in only to find Crawford sitting on his bed holding a handgun. They retreated and heard a single gunshot go off. Crawford died by suicide before he could be arrested, charged, or questioned about other possible murders he may be tied to. And I know in his home, they found a suicide note dated in 2016, which they thought could have possibly because that's when they were interrogating him was in 2016, like that he maybe wrote it then. And there was a copy of Maury Terry's book that included Arliss's murder. At the press conference announcing Crawford's death and his likely involvement with Arliss's murder Detective Smith said they didn't believe Crawford was related to any of the other unsolved Stanford murders, but they were open to the possibility of he, him being involved in other crimes, especially considering the ritualistic layout of Arliss's body. But others don't believe he's related to anything else. Um, Herhold, Herhold, H-E-R-H-O-L-D. Herhold, I guess. <laughs> I don't, is that a first Her, name or a last name? A last name. Herold.
1: Herhold. Herhold.
0: He was a, uh, what's the word, a journalist at the time of her disappearance, like heavily involved in writing about her. So his theory is that why, so as for why, this is a quote from Palo Alto Online. As for why Perry was killed, Herhold said he does not believe she was the intended victim. The gruesome crime was against Stanford, he said, in, in quotes, she paid a terrible price. So in the years prior to Arliss's death, Crawford was a part of the Stanford Department of Public Safety as a police officer. In 1971, the force began a reorganization tactic to ensure everyone that was carrying a gun and given the title of a police officer was actually qualified to do so. And Crawford didn't make the cut. How novel. Yeah. What an idea. Right. So in the years following Arliss's death, Crawford used his security guard status on campus to steal various items from various departments. He was upset by the way Stanford and the local police had treated him during Arliss's murder investigation and was arrested for receipt of stolen property. And he ended up leaving Stanford in 1976. So some people believe that for whatever reason that night, he picked her to like get back at Stanford for firing him basically demoting him to a security guard (laughs) whatever i have no idea but that's disgusting there's no yeah yeah and she was 19
1: like she's a baby it's so just how many cases of like all the things you can
0: relate it back to yeah Yeah. Like a man not getting his way. Right. That element so, of like. Let's kill a woman. Yeah. Yeah. So just a few months later, another break came in the same format. In November of 2018, DNA samples came back from Leslie Perlov's case, matching the DNA found on her body to John Arthur Getrue, Getrue. In May of 2019, he was linked to the murder of Janet Taylor as well. And if he ends up being convicted of both of their murders, he will be considered a serial killer. So John Gittrew raped and murdered 15-year-old Margaret Williams on the U.S. military base in Germany, where his father was stationed when he was a teenager. He was tried in the juvenile court system in Germany and sentenced to 10 years, being released early in 1969, where he moved back to the U.S. Once in the U.S., he attempted to murder 19-year-old Sharon Lucas, Followed by the murders of Leslie Perlov and Janet Taylor in 1973 and 74. And then in 1975, he was actually caught for raping a 17 year old in Palo Alto, where he pled guilty and paid a $2,000 fine and spent six months in prison. Just, you know. I don't even have anything to say to that. No, because we've said it already <laughs> Like numerous fucking times. All of the times. McKenzie's Mackenzie's face right now. It's just like... No. uh, Yeah.
1: Fucking... There's so many people
0: in prison who don't deserve to be there. Exactly. And then this person rapes someone, gets caught for raping someone and then spends six months there. Oh, and he's already killed a girl at this point and raped a girl at this point that we know about. Like, how... He has raped and murdered someone that you know about... (laughs) And he's he served his time for that technically, but he raped someone again, and you just let him out in six months. That's what are what what what
1: were and what are people thinking? Uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> great question.
1: <laughs> I don't, I mean, it's a complicated thing to say with as much media as I've been consuming recently about how horrific and awful the prison system is and it's just like the more things i take in about it the more it's like no shut it all down nothing is working i know nothing is working but then there's this this moment of outliers where it's like okay well if we want to utilize this barbaric heinous system this is the perfect candidate (laughs) maybe some people need Uh, something like that yeah if you can't be trusted to be out in society without murdering people right
0: right (laughs) right So all of these cases were being solved thanks to the same platform that helped tie a link to Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. Once that happened, it opened doors for so many departments to do the same. And that very same year was when all three of these murders were finally solved. A quote from Mercury News. DNA from an unknown man was recovered from stored evidence in the case and submitted to Parabon Nano Labs, a Virginia-based company that combines DNA testing with ge- genealogical mapping to link a person to relatives and ancestors to narrow down an identity. So at Getrue's indictment hearing, Leslie's younger sister, Diane Perlov, spoke, who was 20 at the time of her sister's death. In quotes, I cannot walk alone in the woods, I will not walk to my car at night with a scarf around my neck. These things have become second nature to me as they are with women in this country. I am telling you all this because I want you to know that murder does not just affect the deceased. It changes many lives. It takes many lives and impacts a family forever. And while justice doesn't heal all wounds, it is the least we can do. There is an almost identical quote. Oh, man. From one of the articles in my story. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So there is one case that is lumped in that's what i didn't want to call them the stanford murders because i think a lot of people have heard about them but i would guess most people haven't heard about them being solved because a lot of places that i saw that have covered them was what was before 2018 um so there is still one unsolved case that remains to this day the murder of david levine a junior physics student at stanford university on september 11th 1973 david was walking home from his job in the physics lab early in the morning the 20 year old was attacked from behind just outside the meyer undergraduate library the assailant stabbed him in the back more than 12 times and around 3 a.m a jogger discovered his body the autopsy revealed 12 stab wounds to his back and one to his chest his wallet was left in his pocket but was empty and he still wore a watch on his wrist so burglary burglary wasn't at the top of the list for motives Today, police believe his death was, in quotes, an act of murderer seeking revenge. There was absolutely no sign of a struggle, and considering most of the attack happened to his back, it is believed he was taken by surprise without a chance to fight. So, to those interviewed for the Mercury News article, David was intelligent, intense, and had a lot of potential. He was set to graduate a year early and enjoyed playing chess at the local coffee shop. At the time, those closest to him couldn't think of anyone who would want to harm David. Unfortunately for David's case, detectives aren't able to test old DNA because there isn't anything to test. Nothing was found on or near David that was from the murderer. Like, they have really nothing. So currently, the investigation into David's murder, in quotes, will focus on going back over police, re- police reports and crime scene evidence to find what has the potential to yield something new, like a new DNA profile that was maybe missed before. George Schnurl, who lived down the hall from David, had this to say about the loss of his friend. In quotes, it was just this huge sense of loss, not only for the friend and the person, but just the knowledge in his brilliant mind. It was a loss to everyone, all of us. Who knows what he would have done? That's so sad. I know. It's very sad. He apparently was like... Some people, like, called him quiet and reserved, and then people who lived in his dorm were like, oh, my God, no, like, he just didn't <laughs> do small talk. Like, if you wanted to talk to him about politics or science or something really important and relevant, like, he would
2: talk to you about With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry,
1: sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. <gasps>
2: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Got it.
1: That's awesome. I love when it's like, no, you just didn't talk to his close friends. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. And those are the stand for murders that have been unsolved for 40 something years and just now recently solved except for David's. Yeah, I didn't know the
1: scope of that at all. Yeah. I knew like I knew the name Arliss Perry and the basics of what happened,
0: but I did not know any of that. I didn't either. I know I've wanted to do this before. I started looking at hers and like typing it up and then I realized She's like in this collective Stanford murders because for the longest time, they thought they were all being done by the same person. Um, So I knew I've looked into the Stanford murders before. I don't know why I didn't ever actually research it, but it's been on my list.
1: Who knows what your former self thought? (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm not going to read any of my sources because there are uh, over a dozen of them and... They're all similar, like the titles are all very similar, so they will be in the show notes. From April 8th to May 7th in 1992, towns across the Midwest lived on edge. In less than 30 days, five unsuspecting people, five women and one man had been murdered at local businesses. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Seemingly with no motive, they were killed one by one by a suspect described at the time as, quote, a roaming vagrant, a man who looked like he was sleeping in his clothes. So on April 8th, 1992, Robin Foldauer went to work at the Payless shoe store she managed. Another employee had called in sick, so she knew she was going to be there alone. The last record of sale in the store was at 1.15 p.m., confirming that she was not alone at that time. Between 1.15 and 2 p.m., the district manager tried to call the store, and no one answered. Like, consistently. The entire 45 mm. minutes was like, there's no reason why no one would answer. Someone's working. After calling during those 45 minutes with no answer, she called the number to the Speedway gas station next to the store and asked someone if they would go check the payless. So the manager of the gas station sent a worker named Lucretia Gullett next door to make sure that Robin was all right. As soon as she walked in the door, she saw that the register was open, so she turned around and was like, nope, and went back to the gas station and said, we need to report a robbery. Police arrived and discovered Robin Foldauer's body at 2.21 p.m. Mm. Sometime between 1.15 and 2.21, a gunman entered the store and shot Robin twice in the head. Oh, God. Still at the scene were her purse and coat, though they did confirm that the register drawer was open, suggesting a robbery. Investigators questioned at the time why Robin would have even been killed in that situation, because it seemed like there was no struggle. Nothing was out of place. She was just on the floor. So per the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Robin was salutatorian of her high school class and a graduate of Indiana University. Her father said she wanted a family, but her current focus on her job left her little time. Another acquaintance is listed as describing her as, quote, having a heart of gold. There were several eyewitness accounts of a man that day walking around near the Payless store right at that time. The most detailed came from a man named Jeff Myrose, the manager of a paint store across the street. He said between 120 and 130 p.m. around that time, he described a man walking down the pike. And that's like this strip of road in that area. All the businesses in this location, central to the Payless, are three miles from I-70. He said the men carried a large bag with him, around three feet long, and he acted a little peculiarly. He circled the M.A.B. paint store Jeff was working in several times And then sat down on a curb out front of the hamburger restaurant next to the paint store. So the layout is like Payless, gas station, paint store, hamburger shop. Okay. Like these four businesses, like not in a complete square. Mm -hmm. From the pictures I could find, like none of those businesses are those things anymore, I don't think. But from the old pictures I could find, it's just like a small town strip. Like... Right. I imagined it in my head as, like, Clayton Road, where there's, like, gas station, little tire shop, yeah. mall. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. The restaurant was almost directly across from the Payless, and Jeff described the assumed hitchhiker as, quote, sitting on the curb, talking to himself, and giggling. I'm telling you, he was either on drugs or had some kind of mental problem, which that's a lot to unpack from <laughs> <Yeah>. one observation. <laughs> yeah. But that was his opinion at the time. Around 2 p.m., Jeff opened a side door to see if the man was still there, and he wasn't. So a few minutes after that, he saw the man walking along the northbound lanes to the highway, clearly looking for a ride. Another eyewitness who lived behind the store told police he saw a man run across his property around the approximate time of the 2 p.m. killing. Police said that they had five witness statements, and they were all different. They were similar enough that they were sure. Like, they're all talking about the same person Mm -hmm. that they saw. So we move to April 11th, 1992. The timeline of the second killing is just as tight as the first. Around 6 p.m. on April 11th, a man called the Le Bride d'Elegance store in Wichita. I am not entirely sure of that pronunciation, so apologies. Um, So he called that store, asking if they could stay open late for a few minutes so he could pick up an item he had ordered. The store owner and clerk working that night agreed to stay a little late for him. Patricia Majors, the manager, was 32 years old and had bought the store a little over a year before the I-70 killer's murder spree. The clerk working with her that day was Patricia Smith, a 23-year-old newlywed who, according to her mother, quote, loved babies and little animals.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: When the man who called that evening for an item pickup arrived, he walked into the store and didn't see anyone, so he just kept walking through the aisles. Um, until he walked straight into the path of a man carrying what he described as, quote, an Uzi-type semi-automatic handgun. That weapon was later found to be a 22 caliber handgun. The man is described in both the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the Kansas City Star as unkempt with reddish-blonde hair, a few days' worth of stubble, wearing a brown waist-length jacket and black shoes. In any source that mentions this terrifying interaction, allusions are made to a kind of shouting match, a very intense confrontation between the two men, But nothing has ever been said. There's never been like whatever this man told police about what they said to each other has never been released. Mm -hmm. But the customer backed away as he yelled at the man and then fled from the store. After he ran out of the store, this man did not call police for almost a full hour. The article describes him as scared and confused, obviously, rightfully so. And he didn't he didn't see. Yeah. And he didn't see anyone in the store he didn't make it to the back area. Right. So it's the theory of investigators that they had already been killed by the time the customer made it there. And the man was advancing towards the exit oh, to as leave. he was interrupted. When police arrived shortly after his 7:30 PM phone call, they found the bodies of Patricia majors and Patricia Smith on the floor of the back room. Each woman had been shot in the back of the head. One time mm. majors was declared dead on the scene. Smith was taken to a hospital where she died very shortly after she lived for almost an hour after she was shot. Oh,
0: my God.
1: That... I can't imagine what it's like to know that. And
0: I know. That's horrible.
1: Like, that man didn't make the call. There were other people yeah. in the area. Like, there's just so many close circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was money missing from the register of the shop, but the exact amount seems to never have been released. Um, police did say that the robbery seemed to be an afterthought, second to the execution of the women. And in most of these stories, um, I found one source that said that they left money. The person who did this uh, took some money, but not all. as of it. far as I could tell, never all of it. Mm. So this incident also has a major difference in that Wichita doesn't directly connect to I-70, but I-35, which is three hours away. But that is like 35 is how you get to 70 and then you would continue on. Then we have April 27th, 1992. Michael McCown is another, like there's little things about each victim that's kind of different. Michael McCown is an outlier himself because he's the only man suspected to have been killed by the I-70 shooter. He was running his family's ceramic shop when he was killed. Described by his father to the Kansas City star, Michael had been a drifter earlier in life. He, quote, toured the country with several rock and roll bands. He was a singer, a bass player, and loved harmonicas. He was a born traveler, but decided he was ready for a steadier path in his 30s, so he returned to Terre Haute, Indiana to work at his family's store called Sylvia Ceramics, and Sylvia was his mother. Mm. His parents ran the store together previously, and he had taken over by 1992 and was headed into the store on the morning of the 27th. He met a customer at the store for pickup and then went to an appointment at a chiropractor's office. Around noon, he stopped at his parents' house on his way back to Sylvia Ceramics. So the timeline of Michael's murder also varies from the previous killings. He was found deceased by a customer who entered the store around 4:30 p.m. Investigators estimated that he had died between 60 and 90 minutes before he was found, and he was on the floor next to a shelf of ceramic goods and one of the things from the shelf was on the floor next to him. He had been shot in the back of the head from very close range, about 4 inches, with a 22 oh, caliber gun. God. Most of the sources that I mentioned said that, or no, most of the sources I looked at mentioned that he had an earring and a short ponytail, so it's possible that the gunman thought he was a woman, oh. but he's also listed as 6'4". Oh. So.
0: Okay.
1: I, I mean, every article says that, so I would think that that's definitely something police would want to consider. Yeah. But it also seems like in some of these, there are multiple eyewitnesses who talk about this man being seen multiple times in the same day. Yeah. In these shopping centers yeah. or like, you know, in the on the little strips where all these local stores were found. So there's kind of a suggestion in at least two of them that he is staking them out beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I don't know. I mean I don't think there's enough public evidence that we can really say for sure like if he, you know, if it was a mistake If he thought that maybe Michael's mother would be there, or if he thought another female worked there, or if it was truly – if it ends up being a coincidence that five women and one man were killed. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, there are no eyewitnesses that could describe the suspect from the murder of Michael McCown. I think there are people who describe, like, a drifter in the area, but nothing as specific as what we have in some of the other cases. Okay. Michael's father described him further as a person who loved music and cared about ecology. If someone had a gun, he would probably talk him out of using it, but he would never turn his back. Mm -hmm. He was not a violent person or someone who would be mixed up in violence. So the only saving grace to the death of Michael McCown is that he more than likely had no idea it was coming. Right. Yeah. And then we come to May 3rd, 1992. Like Michael McCown and Robin Fuldauer, she was working alone on May 3rd. Boot Village was located in the Bogey Hills Plaza Shopping Center off of Zumbel Road and Veterans Memorial Parkway right beside I-70. And there is a little less detail about the circumstances of Nancy's death. She opened the store by herself at noon that day and was found by customers around 2.30 p.m. in a storage room when they realized no one seemed to be working. She also had been shot in the head with a 22 caliber gun. Money was taken from the register, but again, not all of it. Nancy grew up in Oklahoma, and in interviews, her parents said she always planned to move back. She was a country girl and loved horses, two-stepping, and she had just purchased herself a Chevy truck two days before her death. Mm. She played soccer in high school and had graduated from Oklahoma State University Stillwater about 18 months prior. She had just secured a job offer to use her geography degree to work for the defense mapping agency of st louis wow. which is now known as the, now known as the national geospatial intelligence yeah, agency yeah that's a big deal
0: yeah so this is I a just, little off topic but not totally there's um what is the cemetery now i don't remember there's a cemetery in st louis that's totally Torn to shreds. I don't know if you've seen it on the oh, Humans of yeah. St. Louis page. They've been working with them to find the yeah. bodies to, so that they can actually make a map and clean the cemetery up so people can go visit their loved ones.
1: Yes, that I feel like it was really random that that came up in this mm-hmm. case because I've been reading about that. Yeah. And then I've also seen, I get like ads. I think because I was researching, like, what you need to do to be a person who works with mapping and like all of those like GIS programs that you worked on in school. Yeah. I was like researching that. So now I get ads for jobs on indeed for like mapping. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I can't, I still get them and I'm like, I don't even know what these mean.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh.
1: So a few days after Nancy's murder, a group of teachers at a Wentzville elementary school announced their plan to create a scholarship in her name for a local high school student. Nancy's mother, Carol, was a teacher at that school in Wentzville, and it was their way to honor Nancy and support Carol. I couldn't find any information on if this is still an active scholarship. Um, but the thing I think that stuck with me the most, Nancy's mother said in one article that it was a hard decision, but she and her husband decided to bury their daughter in her cowboy boots. Mm. She said, quote, I have to put this kid in her jeans and boots and her Western shirt. So that's what we did. I thought she would be happy. That's so sad. It is. And in one article by Michelle Munns for the Post-Dispatch in 2000, Carol and Don Kitzmiller are interviewed for the 8th anniversary of their daughter's death, and the investigator who was on the case at that time was profiled. From 1997, Detective Rich Plummer had worked almost solely on Nancy's murder and the other five I-70 homicides. As of 2000, her death was only the second unsolved murder in St. Charles. Wow. Like, ever? The, yeah, the only one that was left unsolved wow that seems crazy to me i feel like there has to be for like from 2000 to now i feel like that statistic is probably way different yeah but damn yeah so now we have may 7th 1992 sarah blessing had just started her job at a store called shop of many colors in may of 1992 and she actually owned it she bought the store and it had just opened recently The store is described as a new age place, selling things like jewelry, health food, herbal products, and very specifically listed that they sold mini trampolines for exercise. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) It seemed like very much like a woo woo, like be spiritual, be healthy, treat your body like a temple. Yeah. And for like 1992, I just... Obsessed. I think back to the store. There was a store in Centralia that my aunt used to take me to that had like... Glass wolf figurines and incense (laughs) burners and books on meditation. (laughs) Yes. And and I was just like, yes, I know exactly what the inside of that store smelled like. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
0: 100%.
1: So her shop of many colors was located in the Woodson Village Shopping Center. And along with her, I saw in one source that was run by a collective of women who each kind of had their own section of the store. Like she was – everyone that worked there knew something about what they were selling. Okay. Sarah herself was a reflexologist specializing in foot manipulation to relieve stress and tension. And we, kind of like Nancy, get a small but insightful view of who she was as a person from news coverage in 92. On May 7th, as reported by the Kansas City Star, she woke up at her usual time around 7.30, fed her pets, ate breakfast, and left to visit a friend named Karen for a reflexology session. And her cat was named Eclipse, and her dog was named Tammy.
0: Oh my god, I love that.
1: So cute. I'm obsessed
0: with that. <laughs> like I want a cat so, named
1: Eclipse. It's adorable. Yeah. I I was really stuck on a dog named. Tammy. I know that's really good too. I just hope it had floppy ears and slobbered all over her all the time. <laughs> um, and I assume that this next information comes directly from Karen about their visit that day. Um, they apparently talked about mortality, spirituality, heaven, and death during their session. Mm. Sarah's husband, Sonny, said she got home from her visit between 11 and 1130, and that wasn't enough time to stay and eat lunch. So she packed and left to open the shop at 12. He recalled that he was sure her lunch was healthy, probably like cucumbers and nuts because (laughs) she was always concerned about things being natural. Sonny was reported to have called Sarah at 2.12 that afternoon before he went to work himself, and she was totally fine. Around 6.15 p.m., Sarah was alone in the store when a man in a gray sport coat and dress shoes entered the building. Woodson Village is a true strip mall. All of the stores face one big parking lot. So there was more than one person that saw this man walk to the store from the road, never getting out of a car. One of those witnesses spoke to the Post-Dispatch. And in that article at the time, I mean, it was right after this murder, he asked not to be identified. But in other articles since, he is identified specifically in an Unsolved Mysteries write-up about their episode. That was produced uh, and released on May 4th, 1994. His name is Tim Hickman. He described seeing the man from the window of the shop next door to the shop of many colors. That store that he worked in was called the Video Attic. The suspect was medium height, white, and probably in his mid to late 30s. He said he watched the man muttering to himself, walk up to the store where Sarah was alone inside. A short time later, he heard a pop and thinking it might have been a gunshot, opened the door. He watched the man exit the shop of many colors and turn around the corner of the building, walking away calmly. He went into the shop and found Sarah on the floor, already dead from the gunshot wound. Mm. Like the other shootings, there was money missing from the register, but not much. The money seemed to be secondary. Mm. So this is kind of where we break. These are kind of the, I don't know if canonical is a word that people would use, but this is, these murders are all thought by the investigators involved to firmly be linked based on the gunshot wounds, the type of gun used, and the description of the suspect. Uh, But there is also the possibility that other murders could be connected to this string of killings. I mentioned the article about Detective Rich Plummer earlier for this section. There are dozens of theories online spun by amateurs based on the possibility of more murders committed by this unknown I-70 killer. So this next bit is paraphrased from the Indianapolis Star, from an article by Diana Penner that was published on March 6, 2013. So that was all 1992. In 1993, there was a second set of shootings that people thought might be related to this. Um, They all happened in Texas, and it involved a twenty two caliber gun, but not the same one that was used in the Midwestern I-70 shootings. So Mary Ann Glasscock was 51. She worked alone at a small antique store when she was shot and murdered. Amy Vess was 21 years old and she was killed November 1st, 1993. She was shot to death in a dancewear shop. And Vicki Webb, who was 35 on January 15th, 1994 in Houston, Texas. She was working alone when a man came in, looked around the shop and shot her in the head. She survived this surprise attack on her because she this is a direct quote from the article had an unusually large vertebrae that prevented the bullet from penetrating into her head. Holy shit. She pretended to be dead and the shooter walked up to her put his weapon to her head and pulled the trigger again and the gun misfired. What? Yeah this is still a direct quote. He
0: laughed, stepped over her, and left. That's, oh man, that is insanity. Yeah.
1: So all of that information was from the Indianapolis Star, and then concerning the same secondary set of murders, back to the post-dispatch, so this mentions four shootings happening since the 1992 murders, and then... It mentions the three in Texas, and then it says, with no other information, the latest took place last year in O'Fallon, Illinois.
0: With no other information? And I could,
1: yeah, I couldn't find any information on that one. Huh. So yeah. um, his quote on that from this article, We have to consider them linked to ours until proven otherwise, Plummer said. When he and McCarrick, another investigator, hear grumbling from others about the time they still spend on the investigation, They play a tape of a 911 call, Amy made just before she died on November 1st, 1993. Hmm. She was, quote, able to pull herself toward the counter and pull down the telephone. One shot struck the side of her jaw. She could barely form words, but she tried. And ultimately, she died before anyone could get to her.
0: This one is a big, big bummer. It's a huge bummer because it's... It's just, like, the randomness of it that, you know, it. They seem, they seem to be totally random. Like, even if he was staking out the stores, it's still, a, I, to me, it sounds like a random selection of, like, this store, this individual, you know? Like, yeah. That's I mean, I think the scary I, part that it could literally be anybody, which can, it's always yes. the case, but, you know. When you hear stories I mean, I think, about people who are murdered by someone they know, or something like that, you can kind of distance yourself. but oh,
1: absolutely, because I think this is the thing that anyone's afraid mm-hmm. of you I mean, like if you're a person who has irrational fears, like I think my greatest fear in life is being shot in the head, yeah, yeah,
0: because there's nothing you can there's do nothing.
1: right you're it's over, so that's actually what we're going to talk about the investigation. The Wichita Police Department wasn't aware of the other murders until a month after the murders of Patricia Majors and Patricia Smith. The Post-Dispatch reported that they found out about them. So the Post-Dispatch reported that the Wichita Police Department found out that there were similar killings in other states because they just hit a dead end. They did everything they were supposed to, everything they could, and they were like, this makes no sense. It's not a robbery. We investigated everyone that's close to these people. And no one, like, you know, not one of these victims seems to have an enemy. Mm -hmm. No one can point to, you know, a vindictive person in their lives. So they just started randomly calling other police departments in their own state and then outside the state to be like, what do you have? This is insane. Someone else has to have this kind of one-off murder. So when they called in Indiana, they found out about Robin Foldauer's death. And at first, each department, Wichita and Indianapolis, had a firearms expert speak to each other And just based on their conversations, they concluded that they thought they had different weapons. But later, officers from Missouri and Indiana realized that the shell casings... I don't actually know if I should say shell casings. I don't know what I'm describing when I'm talking about this 22 caliber gun. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say bullets. (laughs) But later, when officers from Missouri and Indiana realized that the bullets from those killings were the same... They went back to wichita and they were like are you sure yeah and they realized by the, you know at this point they're driving to meet each other mm-hmm. and sending evidence yeah. back and yeah. forth and they realize it's the same and they were the same as the evidence found in raytown missouri so all of the police departments followed protocol until they hit a dead end and from the tone of many of those articles they were stumped because they were looking so hard for motives like, mm-hmm. like I said, if robbery wasn't it, they focused on personal connections. And finally, they had to admit that they thought the motive was simply murder. Yeah, And it was really weird to read an article where there was so much focus on that, mm-hmm. that all these investigators couldn't believe that someone would just kill for the sake of killing. And I was like, is that a 1992 thing? Right. Is that <laughs> I make my life consuming this type of media, so I'm not weirded out? No, or like, you right. know, I, I couldn't decide. But it was... It just stuck out to me that there was so much personal, like, anecdote given by investigators that they were like, we just couldn't believe it. And one of the guys had previously worked on the BTK case. Oh my gosh. So I think you have to think, this isn't happening again. Right. And then, further, the pattern was extremely strange. The first murder, Robin Fuldauer, was in Indianapolis, and the second was in Wichita. There is a 675-mile difference between them. The third was in Terre Haute, 600 miles away from Wichita, back in the original direction. Hmm. The site of the third murder, Terre Haute, 183 miles back towards Wichita. And then the last known location, Raytown, Missouri, is 221 miles from St. Charles. Oh, jeez. So the pattern is like one Mm-hmm. Two, like, one here, yeah. one here, all the way back here, and then across and up a little bit. Yeah. All the victims were killed in the late afternoon or early evening. All five women had brown hair, and it's thought that the shooter believed all of his victims would be working alone. There are eyewitness accounts in almost every case. The only one where I didn't get a for sure we saw this guy walk into the store was in the case of Michael McCown. Yeah. So I have... A description. There were several descriptions given, especially because these articles were coming out at the time of the crime. They're all wildly different. Um, But the most consistent details uh, I took from St. Charles Crime Stoppers, they kind of compiled it all into one with the sketches. The suspect is described as a white male aged mid-30s in 1992. Today, he is probably in his mid-50s. Physically, he was described in 1992 as about five foot seven inches tall, weighing possibly 160 pounds, slender to medium build with light brown or auburn red hair, cut short and beard stubble on his face. Lots of the articles listed that he had sandy hair, that it was like blonde-ish. There's a lot of like, it makes me think he was like a strawberry blonde where you can't really decide. Right, yeah. And then this is another quote. Straight from the Saint Charles Crime Stoppers website, based on ballistic evidence and witness statements, it is possible that the murder weapon was an Intratex Scorpion or an Irma Work Model e to ET Twenty Two. Although other makes and models of twenty-two caliber weapons can't be ruled out without a laboratory examination, and any twenty-two auto associated with the suspect will be examined. And that is information that they didn't release until like twenty years later. Mm. There are a bunch of articles from. Way later, like 2013 to 2016 and 2017, about this information specifically that came out. Yeah, yeah. The ammunition used was CCI brand 22 caliber long rifle, copper clad lead bullets. And I'm reading all of this directly because I don't know what any of it means. (laughs) Found on cartridge cases were two substances, corundum and a red material consistent with rouge. Both of those substances, corundum, Corundum, which is used as an industrial abrasive, and rouge, which is used as an industrial polish, are used in grinding, buffing, and polishing a wide variety of materials, including firearms. It is possible that the killer lived or worked in an environment where grinding, buffing, or polishing was performed, possibly with a wheel. Hmm. And the I 70 killer has never been caught. The case number with the St. Charles Crime Stoppers is 14 8624. And the general phone number for the St. Charles Police Department, if you have any information, is 636-949-3200. And then I wanted to end on a quote. Um, I mean, there are quotes. If you read, I'm going to post all the sources, and if you open any of them, it's just full of these victims' parents and relatives and coworkers talking about what nice people they all were. But the story of uh, Nancy Kitzmiller had a lot of press available to me since that's a local one and her dad said it's not cold to us said don kits miller it happened yesterday to us Mm. to lose a child is something you never get over yeah and that is the unsolved i-70 killer that's so insane
0: all of that
1: yeah um i definitely didn't get too much into the uh, like the second set of murders in texas I think mainly just because of the distance and the information that you can find predominantly is that like these murders happened. And then also maybe these ones oh, did. Right. There's not as much information connecting all of those together. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, it's not, I'm not as familiar with those sources, so I couldn't put it together as much as I could have if they were local. Right. But If you want to go down an absolute (laughs) rabbit hole, you can look this up on, yeah, I mean, taking it for what it's worth. Like, Web Sleuths is not a place where facts happen. That's a place where pure speculation happens. Yeah. And sometimes outright bullshit. Yeah. But if you want to look this up and type in, like, plus sign Web Sleuths at the end of I-70 Killer, there is a fantastic thread of just people throwing out suspects and other cold cases that are one woman getting murdered in a store. Yeah. And it's so wild to think, like, I mean, I, I saw 12 of them.
0: Yeah. That
1: could be. And some of them are as far away as, like, Utah, because that's how long I-70 is. I mean, yeah. That's what you could just hitchhike. Yeah. And then, of course, there were crazy comments. My favorite place to look for dumb shit on the internet is the comments section. If you go to the Unsolved Mysteries website, either the legit website or the, like, wiki fandom website and look at the comments that people leave underneath the episode <laughs> recaps. <laughs> madness pure madness oh my gosh one person and like someone's commenting back to them now i don't know if it's like a representative from the website huh. or if it's just a random person being like you need to call the fbi oh my gosh but let me just cut this out i'm just telling you this <laughs> Because I don't want it. But this is March 13th. These are from 2021. Oh, shit. From Unanimous. Hates women because his son drowned due to a negligent mother. And some of you are right. Wasn't a truck driver. Meticulous with his weapons. Code talks to himself. And he is definitely squirmy. If anyone here is interested, especially the guy who saw him in Colorado, I have pics if you want to see them. What?
0: Yeah, excuse me, What?
1: Um, And then on December 10th, 2020, I think my dad was the I-70 killer. He was a truck driver and traveled the I-70 route all the time. He was born in Kansas and lived in Indiana at the time, but moved to Michigan not long after the Texas murders. He had extreme hatred for his mother and his twin sister, who were both petite women with dark hair. I can place him in Texas around the time of those killings. The composite sketch is so close to what he looked like when he was younger, right down to the lazy left eyelid and receding hairline that gives him the high forehead. The only thing missing is a scar he had on his chin. I submitted a tip and have gotten no response. What the fuck? Which, like, of course, it's a comment on the internet, but that's the most coherent thing I've ever right. read.
0: <laughs> oh, man.
1: Oh, okay, so this is where we can insert back into the episode. Okay. One of the most predominant theories online by, you know, people such as ourselves who just like to talk on the internet is that Neil Falls is possibly involved he is a suspected serial killer that was murdered by one of his targeted victims. Oh. There is an episode of Murder Squad by Paul Holes and Billy Jensen that talks about Neil Falls. And same thing. If you like look him up on Web Sleuths, there's a big thread right. about what that could be like. So it's definitely one that if you look into it, there's
0: Lots. not enough information, but also so much. Right. <laughs> Not enough so coherent information, but a lot of yes. information
1: if you decide to dig into it on the internet, just pay attention to where you're reading because right, I get very excited by dumb comments where people claim to know something, like just personally, oh I, yeah. I don't know yeah, yeah that behavior is something that fascinates me, whether it's true or it's not, yeah, I just yeah, I like people put personal information on the internet, I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs>
0: So that's our first regular episode back, guys. Hope that was good. Oh my gosh, and happy Pride month. Yeah, happy Pride, everyone. It's the first time we're recording in June. Yeah, like the middle of the month, but that's okay. Still happy Pride. I regret that I don't remember. It might have been my friend that
1: I follow, just a Twitter friend that I have in my recent communications. I am pretty sure... It might have been the podcast for I Gay the 13th. Someone, that one of the hosts of that show, posted, uh, be gay, do crime. <laughs> Just the whole tweet. <laughs> it was that, and I laughed so hard.
0: <laughs> so good. Yeah, be gay and do, do good crime. Yeah, do good crime, you guys. And be gay. Look out. Yeah. Always. Look out for each other
1: and yourselves. Yes. And we've been in the house for so goddamn long. Go out into the streets and get fucking rowdy and celebrate yourselves for pride. Definitely. (laughs) Safely. As long as you can do it safely. (laughs) God damn it. Everyone deserves to have some fun. Yeah, That's all I got. That's all we have. That's good. So, yeah. Sorry that everything was so sad, but that's just how it goes. That's
0: how it is.
1: So until we release our next episode, you can find us on all of the social media places Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We are at Dead Champs C A J M P S. And you can search Death by Champagne Podcast on Facebook and Patreon if you enjoy the show, wanna support us, or if you want extra episodes. Um there are I don't know how many episodes there are over there. A lot. Like thirty? Probably fifty. I don't
0: know. There's probably
1: there's probably closer to thirty. I would say. Something like that. Yeah. There's extra episodes over there. And we are getting two in June. Yes. Because the world did not allow us to come together yeah, in we May. Were, <laughs> we were off in May. So getting two treats. Yes. And they're good. They're going to be exciting. Mine is a new thing that like I haven't ever done before. I'm so excited.
0: So until next time. We're here to keep you up at night. Hail Satan. And pop some bottles. Oh, that was beautiful. (laughs) I'm going to do it again. So good. So good. I don't even need to do anything. Bless the Starbucks coffee bottle. Yeah.
1: We should just record that and that's it. Every time. That that
0: was
1: angelic. Yeah, that was beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time, guys. Bye.
0: Bye.